You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Today's podcast is with Catherine Finney, who is the managing partner of Genius Guild, a $20 million venture fund and studio that invests in amazing black founders. She is a serial entrepreneur, and she's written a new book. It's called Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business if You're Not a Rich White Guy. Enjoy the pod. Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Catherine Finney, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You open your new book by talking about your life in 2009, which was actually pretty great for you. You had turned your blog, The Budget Fashionista, into a multi-million dollar media empire. You're appearing on the Today Show and getting six-figure endorsement deals. And then you join an incubator program in New York City. What happened then? Well, I come into this program, and just to even give even more of a setup. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, yep. where I was used to being the only chocolate drop in the room. So <laughs> I was, I, it wasn't a, a problem with that. And I also came up in tech. My father was in tech. And so I knew the space. I knew what I was coming into. But I entered into this incubator program where there were about 45 um, participants, four women, and one person who had a dark tan, myself. Mm. And was met with something I had never been met with in my life before, which was people not just having low expectations, having no expectations of me. Mm. And it was really, really hard, you know, being this lifelong overachiever to have people who just didn't think I could do something solely based on my race and gender. And that was very difficult. I ended up leaving that accelerator program um, 
because it was just like so crazy. And I remember going into the office to talk to the head of the program to tell him his problems and things like that. And he sat me down and it was a very like startup-y office. You know, it had the whiteboard with like scribbles on it that didn't mean anything, I think. And, you know, this big like Herman Miller chair and like, you know, like very... What you think of startup, that's exactly what it was. And he's listening and he's like, I'm telling him about my idea. I'm telling him about the challenges. And he said, you know, this is a great idea. You obviously know the market and you have this great community that you've built. But I've never met anyone who has invested in Black women before. And I don't think you'll get the money. I don't think you'll be the first. And then kind of stood up. As if to say, okay, we're done. <laughs> but, you know, people like stand up in the middle of a meeting. I was like, okay, we're done. You can go now. And just to be so dismissed, so marginalized, purely because of my race and gender, there's nothing else. It just was really a humbling experience for me. It was a really hard experience, but it's definitely impacted everything that I've done since. So this isn't the 50s. It isn't the 60s. It isn't the 70s. It isn't the 80s. No, it's 2009. It's like oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. It's interesting, too. You say, quote, the world of startups is super lazy when it comes to dealing with actual humans. And, yeah. of course, we get brought in because of our improvisational background to work a yeah. lot in Silicon Valley because no one knows how to talk to each other, among yeah. other things. Yeah. And it's amazing, right? Because it is like it is truly a bubble. Truly a bubble. And it's really... One of the things I think is is key to understanding Silicon Valley and the tech world in general is that a lot of the people who lead it don't actually like human beings. And when you you realize that, it becomes easier to understand why things are the way they are. Um, Why why are we having such vitriol on Facebook and Twitter and these social media platforms? Um, Why are people routinely excluded from the development of things? For many, many years, it was very hard with the um, sensors, if you had dark skin for it to work. So you would go into an airport bathroom and this used to happen to me all the time and you would run, I would run my hand over the sensor and it wouldn't work. And that was because the initial sensors were not trained to recognize dark skin. Right. Like uh, photography. I mean, that, that was the problem in photography for years. Too, right. Yes. And people don't know and, and people and uh, and they, they don't know that in terms of like that that history. It's it's it seems to be somewhat hidden from them, but then in in actuality it's horrific. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I couldn't wash my hands, right? right, right. <laughs> because there was no button that turned, there was no other way to wash my hands. And and you and so once you understand that about the tech world, that it, it really does help you navigate. And it also helps you to understand what sort of things need to happen in order to keep it in. So we want innovation. We, we want new things to be developed. We want to be move, move forward. We want progress. But we don't want that at the expense of humanity. And right. so that's one of the things that, you know, as the general citizenry of the world, even those of us in tech have to make sure that the humanity part continues. Right, right, right. So I'm married to a Minnesota girl, St. Paul, uh, and uh, and then you, yeah, you studied at Yale to be an epidemiologist. Yes, like <laughs> this seems like this is different. It's what happened there? It's not actually the, the universe has a way of of conspiring for your greatness and having everything come sort of full circle. And right. so I started off as an epidemiologist, 
um, working internationally in very far away places like Sharmal Shrake in the Sinai Peninsula and mm. Japur, India, and places like that. And I had a sick parent. My father became ill and I had to come back to the States. And this was in the early 2000s. So we didn't have the Zooms and the FaceTime. Like you, you had to actually go be with the person. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't see, we couldn't do it all, you know, virtually. You had to physically go if you wanted to see someone and see them. I know it's like a world that, that we... Um, some people don't know that world at all. I miss it. Some people don't know that world. <laughs> I have to go see you. And so I went back um, and was working stateside and met someone and I fell in love and we got married and I started my first company around that time, the budget fashionista. Um, and then it became a thing. I left my job as an epidemiologist when I got my first book deal and grew that, scaled that, sold that, went to go work for another woman led startup that got sold, started an organization called Digital Divided. Um, which started off as a very small thing funded a lot by myself um, to help more Black and Latinx women get into this uh, startup world. Now it's a massive organization that continues to, to grow. And left that in 2020 to start my, my venture fund. Um, and so it's been a very interesting career. I would say, though, the first major investment I made out of the fund was in another black woman epidemiologist. Mm. And so it was such a full circle moment that after that wire went out, I actually was a little, you know, the It was a little like that I got to invest essentially in myself. That's right. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, your dad sounded like an amazing human being. Can you tell a bit, little bit about his, his story? He really was. And I think, you know, he grew up at a time where he was limited. Sure. Um, and, and in many ways, we could say, you know, still communities of color, particularly Black communities, are limited. But not as limited as those who came before us. And I always have to remind, um, you know, people of my generation, I'm like, on a borderline of Gen X, millennial, and then also younger of how limited people were. Mm-hmm. And so my dad wanted to be a surgeon. That's what's his dream, but was told by a guidance counselor that that was too big of a dream for him as, as a black man. So he should go work at the brewery like everyone else. Um, I actually think the person saying that to him probably had a big shift in my dad. And he started to become basically a juvenile delinquent because yeah. he was told that his dream was not attainable. And um, anytime you have a dream crush, especially as a child, like it really does have a big impact. But he was given the option by a judge. He had stole a car and was given an option of going to the Vietnam War or going to jail. He was 16 years old. He chose to go to the war. This was... 62. So it was before what the war became, right? I'm not right. sure he would have made that same decision if it had been like 68 or 69. I'm right. not sure that that would have been the same decision. But in 62, you know, it sounded a lot better deal than going to jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. It was a much better thing. And so he went to war at 16 and went all the way. I mean, I can't even imagine being 16 years old and, be, and being on a plane and going to Korea in 1962, where the world wasn't as small as it is now. Mm-hmm. 
And so he served in Vietnam, came back, worked in a brewery, which is what everybody does, um, at least at that point in Milwaukee. He worked for one of the big breweries. He worked for Schlitz. Mm-hmm. And you could really have a great life working in the factory. Um, and we did until the factory left, the brewery left, and really decimated Milwaukee. Um, Milwaukee is just now kind of coming back almost 40 years later. Mm. Uh, and even then, it's still a little bit of a struggle. But what happened in Milwaukee was no different than what's happened in Gary, Indiana, or Detroit, or Yorktown, you know, where you have these company towns, right? And the company leaves, and there's nothing that comes in to replace the company. But my dad was a brilliant mind. He was, you know, he found himself at a workforce opportunity center, um, took a class in C++, which is the foundation, foundational computing language. I actually have the certificate he got for the completion wow. of that course. Wow. Um, it was in December 1981. <laughs> and some guy from IBM was like, I'm going to teach a group of displaced factory workers in the hood how to code. I mean, and this was before coding was cute. Most people didn't have personal computers in 1981. And so that moved my family to Minneapolis. And my dad rose to the ranks quite quickly because he was just that brilliant. Um, and went from being a data entry clerk to being a rock star at, at digital equipment, which was an early personal computing company, and then being lured away to Microsoft at the height of working for Microsoft. And I often tell people why that was important is between the, the time period of 1986 and 1996, Microsoft stock grew a hundredfold. Yeah. And a lot of their employees got bonuses and stock options. And so as a result, by 2000, Microsoft had created over 12,000 millionaires. Wow. From Microsoft, one company. Right. Right, one company. Because of equity, they shared equity with their um, employees, and those employees came rich. And I use that often when I talk about the way I think about investing at James Gill, I'm in, um, the general partner. I don't think it's I win and you lose. I really honestly think we all can win. And that, to me, is an example of that, because Bill Gates is not less of a billionaire after making no. $12 million. He's He's always been the top billionaire, right? For how many years? And he still made 12 millionaires, 12,000 millionaires and how many other thousandaires, right? Right. And so this idea that um, if I'm somehow, if I'm not uh, enough, if if I don't have all the billions and I'm somehow losing, it's not true. And I think that's a really important lesson. And because of Microsoft's giving that equity to employees who earned the equity, it wasn't given as a gift, it helped not only my father, but it changed the trajectory of my family. It helped a lot of other people in the community. Um, My father was very generous with that. And so it was this ripple effect that happened. Um, And it was really quite profound. And my father, when my father passed away 20 years ago, there was almost a thousand people at his funeral. They held it at the high school auditorium. Hmm. And it, it turned into a roast. It wasn't an actual memorial service. I remember one person said to me, this is the most fun I've ever had at a memorial oh, that's service. That's great. That is great to hear. Um, 
because you know, and it was all these sorts of things. We had like four pastors spoke because my dad was like very connected mm-hmm. in the church community, and then he had people who sang, and then he had sat on the board of the only um, black radio station in Minnesota called KMOJ. It was really instrumental in getting them quite a significant amount of funding and equipment. So they played music the whole time. I mean, it was like it was a party. It was like it was yeah. a party. Um, I. I, I was the MC of it. And, um, you know, as a kid, I was, I was 25 at the time, just looking out into the audience and seeing these people who came to celebrate my dad. It was a real lesson in living. Yeah. A real lesson in living. Like, how do you live your life? You live your life so when you leave, you have that. You live, you know, there's that saying, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life as such that when you pass, uh, you rejoice and the world cries. And that really was what happened. It was all these people in the love and people flew into Minnesota at the end of January. Yeah, that's not where you want to be. That's love to have that. That's, that's love. Nobody goes, I'm from Minnesota. I don't go to Minnesota no, at the end no. of January unless I have to. I am not going there. And so it was just really powerful and a, and a powerful lesson in living. And my dad continues to influence me. Um, I was talking to someone that said, you know, one of the things he said to me was, um, this was in the 90s, the height of grunge, and I was dressing horribly. Horribly. Like the worst possible dress. And it was my dad's sense that I was dressing that way in hopes that people maybe wouldn't see me. That could be a strength back. And he said, you know, Catherine, you're a big girl with a very big personality. I'm 5'10", almost 5'11". When you walk in the room, you're going to get noticed. And there's nothing you can do about it. Hmm. People are going to notice you. You just are noticeable. Like you are. People are going to turn and they're going to look. So give them something to look at. And, hmm. and that just like really got a lot of my life. They're going to look. So you might as well be your quirky self. It doesn't matter you know, um, even in that accelerator program, that's how I knew is like, you don't think I can do anything? Uh, that's fine. I'll go over here and, and sell my company and, you know, screw you, basically. Um, but that's how I knew I could do stuff because of yeah. advice like that from my, my father of like, give them something to look at. They're going to look at you anyway. You can't speak yourself. You can't be less than, even though other people are going to want you to. You can never be less than you. And you is like this glorious person. So just be that glorious person. No, I think we're both very lucky in that regard. I mean, my dad came from nothing. He ran away from home when he was 16 and he became a a radio TV guy here in Chicago for like 23 years, very successful in WGN. And he modeled kindness and he modeled a work ethic and that you could also uh, work in, in the, like the entertainment field. And so when I said I wanted, I'm the youngest of six, when I said I wanted to get into theater, he's like, great. Um, yeah. And so I, I sort of felt that. And it's funny, my 25-year-old son who wants to be an actor uh, yeah. said something the other day to us of like, I just want to have a job like you and your in my my wife uh, have because she's also in theater uh, that where you come home and you love to talk about your work. You know, it's like it's it's that's you can just see it. And it's interesting in a book about. So I know a bunch of people in in the sort of startup world. Yeah. And I've always said, and I've always thought the best training for people in startup would be to like put on a play. 
Yeah. Because you, you have to do everything. You have to do everything. And it's not pretty. And, 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 but uh, what I love, and this is sort of a how-to book for people who look like you and, and don't look like, like me. And so w- you start very early with, you, you say, quote, your self-care is also your company's self-care. And yes. I think this is so important because it is, it's about like, is your mind right? Are you well? Because you have to be to go on this journey because it's not going to yeah. be easy. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. You know, entrepreneurship is irrational. Right. It is. Um, there is much easier ways to get money than being an entrepreneur. And so you're not being an entrepreneur for money. Um, you are an entrepreneur because you want a creative life in which you can control. And entrepreneurship gives you the ability to do that. Yeah. And so in order to do, to maintain that, you have to make sure your mental health is great being solid and to spend some time with that. Um, and I don't think we really talk about that enough. And no. we never talked about that in terms of entrepreneurship until recently. Another thing I will highlight is that this book, one of the things that's been interesting in this book is how many successful white guys like this book. Like mm. the like, rich white guys. <laughs> one of them, the people who endorsed the book is Steve Case. He was the founder of AOL, right? So he's like a great, he's a grand fuba of rich white guys. Um, and one of the things he said to me as he's an active investor, runs an investment fund called revolution and has invested in a number of startups led by people of color. And he said, you know, I would say things, but because it's me saying it, it wasn't heard in a certain way. And in this book, you're saying the same thing, but you're saying in a way that people can, can hear it. Yeah, so that was really great. Like I can give them this book and it's context now for people understanding why I'm saying what I'm saying. Um, and I was like, great. So now you can buy 10,000 books. But, like, <laughs> but, but I think this idea of, you know, we all are on this journey and there's only, you know, a thousand men that are probably considered, you know, super successful rich white guys in the mm-hmm. United States at least. And so, and all, all the rest of us are builders. We all have to build, whether we have to build networks because we didn't come from families with money or even build networks because we come from outside the, the coast. That's a thing very much in the startup space. Or we have to build uh, foundations because we're the only people in our family with money. Or we come from communities in which people discard us because of our identity and we have to build figure out a way to build bridges with people who may not see a a bridge to be built. Um, So, and this book is really for us. And like, how do you actually do it? Um, And I never read a book that talked about these sort of things of, you know, how do you, how do you deal with being a mom and being an entrepreneur and being a leader and the expectations people have of you um, and many times as women, even in our uh, own businesses, we have to fight for people not to put us in the motherhood, bro. You know, as I said to someone once, I'm not your mother, I'm your boss. Like, I'm, like the things that you're saying, I get it and I can sympathize as one human being to another, but I, I'm not here to fix that for you. That's maybe what your mom would do. And I'm not in that role. Um, I'm here to maybe mention you, give you some advice on what you can do, but I'm not in that. But how do you navigate that as a woman? Um, and as a woman leader, we often find ourselves put in these sort of positions where people have that sort of expectation. So really writing this book was for 
everyone who's like, I'm trying to build something and I can get these little tidbits from these books, which are great. But I also have some other stuff that no one's ever talked about. Well, and I think too, because you talk a lot about your struggles and I know we work a lot in the science community and there's really good science around the fact that the most effective leaders share their struggles and that their, their people can sort of see um, the hardships. Uh, And, and that's, that's, that's the thing I like because there's really practical advice and there's also this, these stories and, and those stories have a kind of power and a kind of a humanity that you don't see often in this field. You know, one of the things I, I just recently got a divorce and a friend told me when you get your divorce, take a trip by yourself. Mm-hmm. Just you. Um, mostly because you need to be, you need to be with yourself for a minute. Right. And I was really nervous about doing that. I did that this summer. I went to Europe. Very, very nervous about like, like, could I possibly take a month off? Like, right. Could, could I, I mean, the thought of it, I even have anxiety, even though it's over. I have anxiety now talking about taking a month, a month yeah, off. Okay. And my team was like, go, go. Um, they knew the challenges that I was going through. And so I went, came back, the world kept spinning. As I tell people, you leave, the world keeps spinning. Mm-hmm. And what happened was a couple of really interesting things. One being... When you as a leader, and especially if you're kind of this force of nature leader, lead, it creates space for others to step into leadership. Mm-hmm. So what happened was certain people rose to the occasion. And what that allowed me to see was like, oh, wait, there are, I have, lead, here are the leaders in my organization. Here are the people who can move things forward. And it was really enlightening for me. It was, really was mm-hmm. like. Also, by being vulnerable and sharing that I was going through divorce, it allowed team members to also kind of mentor me. So we went on a, a team retreat. And um, this is right when I first started getting on um, dating. And my team, who are all, you know, uh, Gen X, but mostly millennial and Gen Z, were super excited because Catherine's on Bumble. <laughs> and they were like, give us your bumble. And they like took it and they would go through me like, he's too short. He can't afford you. He's like, you know, and they're like going through and they're like, okay, don't do that like picture. You look weird in that picture. Like do this picture, do this. And you should see how it made us so much closer. Mm-hmm. You should see how like excited they were to mentor the mentee, like become the, the mentee became the mentor. And so I was right. like, mentee, and they loved it. And it was like they were able to assume a leadership role, right, in that particular case. Um, and it made us much closer as a team. It's also hilarious, too, because they actually really did give some pretty good dating advice. I, was, I said to someone, the, the last time I had dated was when Ja Rule was in. Like, yeah. he was like, hot on the, on the chart. <laughs> like, that, that was the last time I did. So I was, like, completely new to what had happened in the past, like, you know, almost 20 years. Um, so it was really good, but it, as a team though, showing that vulnerability, let them know that I was human and they could see my humanity. And I think that was super important. Well, I think this is something that I wish I had known earlier in my career when I was in a senior position. Um, but what I do know now, which is it's really, you as, as the, the sort of, if you're a revered figure or a senior leader, you have to do the work 
to get people to open up or or give yeah. you advice because they ain't they ain't going to do it. They're just just they make a lot of assumptions, and yeah. so that's when you instead of sitting behind the desk when someone comes in, you sit in that chair next to them. You know, you literally like you lower your status, you ask them questions. Or one thing I do, I do this actually a lot with uh, very uh, junior people is ask them for advice on something. Yeah. And then just that act and they, and yeah. it's, it's twofold, right? You're going to hear stuff that you maybe wouldn't otherwise, but also you are building them. Cause it's like yeah. someone just, you know, made that, made that act. Who's in a senior position. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I have witnessed that. Like mm-hmm. when I saw how excited they were, okay, we're going to tutor tapping on this. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not saying in your business, it has to be your dating profile, but, um, but but there's other ways, right? Like particularly those of us who are a bit older who maybe don't know the intricacies of TikTok. Like, you know, asking how does TikTok work? Like, what is, why is this popular? Like, show me a little, you know, can you show me some things on TikTok? Do you think it's something that we should adopt? Um, and if so, how do you think we should use it? Like things like that. I, I do believe asking for advice and asking for help is a way of humbling yourself as a leader, but it also is a way of helping other people step in leadership. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things in our field that we do from the very beginning in improv classes uh, is get people comfortable with failure. This is just, it's, it's vital because you are going, you, if you are making this up, like without a script, you're going to get it wrong most of the time. Uh, and, and when you become more comfortable with that, um, mm-hmm. you're, you're shortening the road, right? You're, you're making it so like, oh no, the, the, I, I can do this successfully or I can get to a place where I can do it successfully. And that's the same for you in that field, right? You, you and you have to be wise about it though, because you can't, you just can't keep failing. You got to figure out these little short. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about how that works. Failure is a part of the journey. It's a necessary part. In fact, you should you should try to fail quickly. You really should. Um, I think, though, when you are, again, marginalized, a person of color, you we don't get to own our failure. You know, a lot of people were talking about Adam Newman, right? The yep. former CEO of WeWork who got $350 million for a company that doesn't exist yet. Um. And how even despite his or in spite of his, you know, ethical challenges, his um, mismanagement, all of that, he still got to start over again with $350 million. Mm-hmm. Those of us who are marginalized don't get that same opportunity. Nope. And true equality is going to come when we do. I mean, I always think of, um, you know, Chris Watt, like per- paraphrasing him, he says, you know, we've made it when we can be mediocre too, right? right? And, and still and still succeed. And how he said, like, I'm like a star celebrity and I live next to a dentist. Like how, like, you know, as a Black person, I had to be Chris Rock, globally yep. known, like, you know, multimillionaire. And the guy next to me got to be a dentist and live, <laughs> you know, like, like, and I'm sure the person wasn't just a dentist. There was probably an orthodontic, you know, orthodontic surgeon. But even that, like, still, like, and so I think, you know, we, we don't get to, we don't get to, we don't get to fail. Our failure is often fatal. Yeah. Like, we don't get to come back. And we don't get that runway. I mean, um, oh, God, I forgot her last name. Elizabeth, uh, the person who, the woman who's the founder of Theranos, right? Yeah. This is the perfect example. Um, made mistakes, made bigger, her mistakes were made bigger, 
um, mostly because she was a woman, and she's trying to make a comeback and start over. And we're and we're not seeing three hundred and fifty million dollar checks being written to her. No. Um, and so I think you know one of the things I talk about in the book is that, particularly as marginalized folks, builders is what I call us. We have to get comfortable with failure because we're going to probably fail a little bit more um, mm-hmm. than others because we don't have the same resources. Um, and that's okay. And that everybody who's ever succeeded has failed. Beyonce has failed. In the book, I tell the story of how she lost a glam or my glam search, which was called a Star Search with Ed McMahon. I'm still dating myself. <laughs> I don't even yeah, know yeah, that's a deep cut. Under 40 knows who Ed McMahon was. But Star Search, and she goes on Star Search and they lose to like a heavy metal band right. um, that no one has knows and probably has heard from since. And, you know, 12-year-old Beyonce could have been like, I'm done. I don't need to do this. But instead, they went back to the drawing board, worked really hard, got a lot of rejection before their first single, which was written about all the rejection that they got called no, 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 right? Like, and mm-hmm. so, and then, of course, we now know who Beyonce, the queen bee goddess is. Mm-hmm. Um, but she felt, and she felt very publicly too, right? Yeah. on TV in front of a national audience and took that and still built. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, people's ideas uh, that, that they come with. And so I had a playwriting teacher once who said to me, if you can't tell me your play in one sentence, you don't have a play, mm-hmm. which I find very useful in terms of yeah. e- other things. You write in the book, quote, if customers aren't willing to pay a premium for your product, then what you're building isn't a company, it's a hobby, end quote. Yes. So to tell first, I want to know, like, what are the ways that people like, well, here's one thing. I know that people think it's one idea. And I like, I, and I say in our fields, like, you need a thousand ideas. Yes. Like, and don't, if you hold on that thing so tightly, it's never going to happen. So how else have you seen people sort of get that wrong? Yeah. It, it can be one idea altered a million times. Yeah, sure. Right? And so the point is not to come with this idea and be inflexible. It's to test and test and test and test that idea until you get to the right point. Um, and I think a lot of people get, they don't understand that. I think, too, um, people get so protective of their ideas. They, they want to, you know copyrighted and trademark it. And I always tell people, do not waste money trademarking your idea. Now, the actual creative content property, that's a different thing. I'm just talking about this idea that's like out there in the ether. Mostly because unless you are a billionaire, it's virtually impossible to defend. Uh It It is really expensive to defend a trademark case. So unless you're prepared to spend thousands, maybe even millions of dollars, then let that go. Focus on execution. Focus on executing it the best. And that's really where we see ideas become sticky is what we like to call them when we see people with traction. If you're building something and no one wants to buy it, it is a hobby. If you're building something and the only people who are buying it are your friends and family, it's a hobby. If you're building something and nobody wants to pay the price that you need to sell it at in order to get a profit, and not just a crazy profit, but a profit enough 
for you to cover your time, your salary, all those, your staff, everyone. It's a hobby. And I know that's really hard sometimes for people to hear, but, but that is true. It is not a market. You're not building a market-based product. You're not building a product that will exist in the market. Um, and so it's really important to understand that. It's really important to find out, will people pay what I need them to pay for this item I'm making before I get too far down the road? Yeah, and I think, too, uh, another similarity between sort of startup and, and uh, theater is that idea of um, a different models, small models, tiny bets. Let's try it out. Let's prototype whatever we have. You can do it in a black box theater or famous standups go to small clubs to test out their stuff before yeah. they take it you know, big to make sure that it's hitting. Because if, it, if it's not, you, you know, no one's going to buy a ticket. No one's going to yeah. buy a thing or no one's going to buy a ticket. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, we always end the podcast by asking our guest for a yes and story. So do you have one for us? Yeah. So in, in my understanding, yes. And is like, you were going to say no, but you said yes. And you, you know, from improv. Yep. And so my yes and story was really about my first book. Um, I was an epidemiologist, had no idea how to write a book, you know, and I met my first literary agent at an event for Yellow Alum. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him about like what I was doing. And he's like, this sounds really, really cool. Like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And now my instinct would have been like, no, not really. I have, to, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I had, but I was like, you know, maybe like, I said, yeah, yeah. Like, and then the end was, and how do you do it? <laughs> so, yes. Okay. So now what do I do? I have no, you know, like, how do I do it? Like, um, because I had no clue how to write a book. And, you know, saying yes to that one thing led to all these other things. I mean, like the trickle effect, the ripple effect of that yes is quite, quite significant. I love it. The book is called Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business If You're Not a Rich White Guy. Catherine Finney, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
se va. <rire>